Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here. <laughs> I was laughing. Sorry, I can't stop laughing. I was watching some good, uh, good Gail Lewis reels. Anyways, it is Saturday, December 2nd. It is nighttime, recording even later than usual. I am watching the uh, Big Ten Conference. We have Iowa, Michigan. I have to say I am not a Michigan or Iowa fan, but I am a Big Ten fan. I'm a Northwestern Wildcat alum, so I have to cheer for them. I also like Wisconsin, but Big Ten is the best conference in college football. Change my mind, I dare you. But anyways, it's weird. Watching these games does make me somewhat miss Chicago and Illinois and the Midwest. Didn't think I would ever say that, but here I am. I do kind of miss it. It's almost been a year since I moved. So anyways, also beautiful day. Got a nice run in. My knee is holding up okay. And during the run, I got to listen to a really cheery, happy podcast. It was Bill Crystal's Conversations. Bill Crystal, obviously somewhat of a controversial figure, but I think uh, I think his domestic views and his views on Trump are pretty reasonable. And I, I tend to agree with him on a lot of things. But his podcast he had on Jonathan, or yeah, Jonathan Carl today, and they talked about his new book, Jonathan Carl's new book on Trump kind of since January 6th and since he lost the election. And I recommend people listen to it. It's on Conversations with Bill Crystal, and it's a pretty dark look into, basically Jonathan Carl talks about how Trump has really changed since 2016. He talks about how Trump ran on, I'll be your voice in 2016. And now in 2024, he's saying, I'll be your retribution. And kind of his point is that all these criminal trials, losing the election January 6th, Trump is a darker force. There's something more sinister about him. He doesn't even do many campaign events anymore. He's mainly holed up at Mar-a-Lago, surrounded by enablers and his lawyers and they just talk about how Trump is a different person than 2016. And it's a lot darker and more desperate of a person. And they just get into a lot of interesting points about how Trump does have plans. He's more focused now, but he also wants revenge on the people he deems took advantage of him or locked him up or politicized everything. And so I recommend people listen to it. I might talk about this in a later episode because Bob Kagan with um, the Washington Post also has a pretty troubling article about what Trump 2.0 would look at. But I talk about it so much that I probably won't mention much more of it today. But I do think the really interesting part that uh, Carl talks about a lot in his book is the idea of active cabinet members or active secretaries. Like basically, as I'm sure most of you know, when you're when you're nominated to be a cabinet member for a presidential administration, you have to be confirmed by the Senate. And during Trump's administration, he kind of found a loophole for that, is that when you fire someone, you just, you just basically promote someone to be active press secretary or active attorney general, etc. And this allows him to kind of go around the process of Senate approval, which some of these crazy people could be denied. And Carl talks about probably if Trump gets reelected, they would use this so they could put in radicals that would probably not pass Senate confirmation. Scary stuff. Anyways, I recommend listening to it, but we'll move on. Um, today, I want to talk about two things mainly. I want to talk about the QAnon shaman who is running for Congress in Arizona. Lucky us. But first, I kind of want to talk about how Ukraine is descending into darkness and how Russia, it's, it's very possible. I would even say quite likely that Russia comes out on top of this. 
I'm not saying it means Russia takes over Ukraine and controls all of Ukraine and we have a new Soviet empire. But what I do mean is that it looks like Russia is slowly getting the upper hand here and it's feeding off of division in the West, turning the global South against this cause. And and it, it is troubling. And so we'll start. So I just was going through some different news stories today. Pretty interesting ones. So first off, <laughs> you have the former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, and he is not being allowed to leave Ukraine because the Ukrainian security services think that there's a Russian plot to get him back into power. And what I mean here is that he's been barred from leaving Ukraine because there are reports that he's going to meet with Viktor Orban in Hungary. And as we know, I think we're pretty familiar with which side of all of this Porsche, I mean, um, Viktor Orban is on. And the AP writes here in quotes, Poroshenko announced Friday that he had been turned away at the border despite previously receiving permission from parliament to leave the country. Under martial law, Ukrainian men between 18 and 60 years of age are not allowed to leave the country without special approval. Now, part of the story could just be that, that they're not letting men leave because they need people to fight. But the other side of this is, is that Poroshenko, 58-year-old, 50, he was president. He loses to Zelensky in 2019. He was always seen as somewhat Putin-friendly. And it seems like they're not letting him leave the country because most reports show that he had agreed to meet Viktor Orban. And as I'll, as I'll get to later, Viktor Orban is one of the leaders holding up more aid to Ukraine. And he also has basically refused to support bids for Ukraine to join the EU. And so basically, Ukrainian officials see Poroshenko as a tool or someone that can be used by the Russian forces. And this is actually interesting to me because I think this generally shows how... Let's remember that Poroshenko was like photographed with an AK on the streets of Kiev when the invasion happened back in February of 2022. Now jump forward two years, almost. Now he's <laughs> being barred from leaving the country to go meet with Viktor Orban. This shows the political division that we're starting to see come to the surface in Ukraine. Russia's taking advantage of it. And I think it, this is a good symbol of why there are worries that Ukraine is not going to be able to actually come out of this on top. And going into a few more stories... Just as I was reading some other notes here, CNN talks about how Russia is going to boost the size of its army by 15% to about 1.32 million. Russia is also getting more innovative, better war technology than two years ago, more prepared for a massive conflict, and of course, more willing to throw young men into the meat grinder. And so that's another thing. And then also you see that Ukraine blew up a bridge. Or, no, sorry, it was a railway railway uh, connection between Russia and China in eastern Russia and Siberia. So now you have Ukraine getting deeper into Russian territory, something that the United States and the West doesn't support. You see Zelensky at a war of words with, with the chief of the Ukrainian army. And then you see Poroshenko now potentially trying to meet with Viktor Orban. And this is all good for Russia. And that's why I started by talking about this is because this sets the scene of what I want to talk about. So moving on, I think The Economist does a good job of pinpointing the key issue here. And it talks about how fatalism and complacency and kind of just a lack of a strategic vision are what is keeping Europe and the United States from doing what it probably should have. Now, I will just start by saying that 
Ukraine ends up getting the weapons it wanted at the beginning. And I think it's been it's been a pretty big failure of the United States and Europe to not just give them what they've needed to win. Because if we wanted to help them stop Russia from the beginning, it seems like just cruel punishment to keep giving them enough to like push the Russians back, but not enough to actually get ahead. And that's kind of what we've been seeing. And now, of course, we have the Giorgia Maloney's in Italy's and the potential return of Donald Trump, Viktor Orban, <laughs> Vox in Spain. You have all these anti-Ukraine, anti-aid parties that are getting more strength. You also have our buddy Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, who could be prime, become prime minister. And so the dynamics are changing. The West is split. The U- Ukraine is internally divided right now. And I think we could have had a better strategic vision at the beginning. And now we're just kind of complacent. And we could have done more to frustrate Putin. We could have deployed more financial resources. We could have done more sanctions. And we've been just too slow to give aid and weapons to Ukraine. And now that's where we're at now is because it's, it's, it's not really lost on me that as a war like this goes on, of course, Ukrainian political situations are going to change internally. Like at the beginning, it was easy for everyone to be uni- unified against a Russian invasion. But now we're several years almost into this and things are not going well. Some are calling it a stalemate. And of course, you're going to see opposition to Zelensky and corruption and just kind of a breakdown in unity. So it's not at all surprising to me. And as I've already kind of mentioned, right now it looks like this is a stalemate. We have to remember that Ukraine's counteroffensive has stalled. But then at the same time, Russia's losing like 900 men a day, according to the stats I've seen. And they're trying to take over a city now called Avidevka, which is a city in the Donbass region. And I think the worries are here that this could just last for years still. And it seems like it will unless there's some drastic shift. And as, and as I talked about, what, about a month ago in that Economist op-ed, the gentleman's name I'm forgetting, but he's, he's, you know, the main leader of the Ukrainian army. And he was basically saying that unless there's a technological advantage, this isn't going anywhere. And it does seem like that's a key here. And the problem, though, with that scenario is that victory becomes more possible the longer this goes for Putin because this is more about endurance than capturing territory. Momentum impacts morale as well, and you have all of this coming together. And neither army is in a position to drive out the other from the land that they currently control. But the problem down the road is that maybe eventually Ukraine is forced to actually make some sort of agreement and give up some land, which I do not support. I do not think they should do it. But down the road, money is going to dry up from the Western allies and the United States if they don't see any progress. And in a sense, I understand why is because taxpayers are, I mean, the the voter, that's the one nice thing about it. Well, not one nice thing. There's many, but one of the nice things about a democracy is that the people do have a say in how foreign policy is dictated. And if tax dollars are going towards a conflict that is a stalemate, it's going to get harder to convince the taxpayers to support it and to support politicians that do. And as you guys know, I am 100% with Ukraine. I think we should just give them everything they need or give Putin some sort of ultimatum. I, I think it's an existential crisis to Western democracy if Putin is allowed to continue. But of course, things have complicated. The South China Sea is more volatile than ever before. And obviously, we have the war in Gaza. And so it, it seems like Ukraine's on the back burner. But that back burner is still burning up a lot of cash and a lot of lives. And so 
I don't think this is just a stalemate because, again, as I've said, the longer this goes on, the better it is for Russia. But I also think things are going in Russia's favor. I want to talk through some of those. As I said, momentum is bad and momentum impacts morale. The problem here is that Ukraine, you know, ran off of momentum in the first few months, obviously surprising the world and surprising Russia. And I thought it was a miracle and it was great to see. The problem now is that if Ukraine retreats, dissent against Zelensky and opposition to, to Zelensky will grow. And then at the same time, as I said, a lot of Western leaders will say then sending more money is a waste. So Ukraine basically has to prove to the West why it needs to get money sent, which means it needs to keep doing well, which it's not. The next issue is, of course, I think Russia at first was taken aback by how well Ukraine responded to the initial invasion. The problem now is that Russia's had two years to prep, and Russia's in a stronger position than it's been in quite some time. Going back to, for example, that CNN article, Russia is looking to increase its number of troops by 170,000, increase its military budget. It is now working on hybrid warfare. It's now working with North Korea and the Iranians. It's getting good drones. Basically, Russia is in a stronger position to fight because it has, like I said, more drones, it has more artillery shells, and it has the money to basically pay the families of dead Russian troops so it can keep sending people to the meat grinder and try to silence the families of those that have lost loved ones in Ukraine, in, in Ukraine fighting. And also, I was reading in The Economist as well that its army has developed successful electronic warfare tactics that they're using against Ukrainian weapons. Basically, Russia's had enough time, enough of a window to catch up. And Ukraine's quick advantage has dried up. And I, I think going a little bit further off of that, at the beginning, we have to remember that the Western world was super unified against the invasion of Ukraine, and rightfully so. But we also don't always talk about the other side of that, which is that a lot of the non-Western world and a lot of the global South has actually kind of been favorable to Russia, or at least have bought into Putin's propaganda that it doesn't really matter what happens in Ukraine and it's all about American hypocrisy. We have to remember that Putin gets drones from Iran, shells from North Korea, and basically Turkey and Kazakhstan, for example, have been channels for sending goods to the Russian war machine through the black market and under the table. And a lot of Africa, especially Africa, is kind of just saying like they don't really care. They're staying neutral on this. And that's because the Russian propaganda networks, which by the way, Prigozhin, before his fall from a plane, he, he was really involved in that propaganda network throughout a lot of the global south. And so a lot of countries are just not convinced that this matters. And a lot of countries are skeptic of the United States as well. And Putin's really played into that quite well. He's turned this into like, this is about America and Europe trying to dominate us and take over us and it's neo-imperialism. Like he has bounced back every time the West has, has accused him of something. And it's working in a lot of places that have been historically kind of hesitant towards imperialism in Europe, generally speaking. We also have to remember another issue is that <laughs> the scheme, the plan, whatever you want to call it, to limit Russian oil revenue, they did this by capping the price of crude. This has all failed because basically, again, Russia's found a parallel trading structure 
kind of a black market under the table way of still selling oil. And this parallel structure has emerged beyond the West. So Putin isn't selling oil to the West. He's selling it to India and then India is selling it back to the West, for example. And the U.S. and a lot of the West has capped the price of crude at $60 a barrel, but Ural's crude from Russia is $64 a barrel, up nearly 10% since the start of 2023, according to The Economist. So even the sanctions and the price caps not working either, and Russia's actually kind of doing well. It's also set up a crypto establishment with China, which, which it uses to basically funnel cash. And so it seems like this whole sanctions regime we've put up has failed. And I hate to say I told you so, but since the beginning, I said this wasn't going to work. Another thing, <laughs> while we're on a roll here, is that Putin has consolidated his position at home. Prigozhin, opposition is dead. And I think a lot of people were hoping, oh, the Russian people are going to turn on Putin. We're going to see some sort of a civil war or a revolution to throw out Putin, who has kind of become a neo-czar or a modern-day czar. But instead, it seems like Putin has strengthened his position at home. I would argue, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, is that authoritarians do well when the rational moderates and certain sections of society just become exhausted and give up and just sit back and don't even try to change things anymore. And to me, it seems like that's probably what's happening. He's also convinced a lot of older Russians that they are locked in somewhat of a struggle for survival against the West. He's made this existential. And then I think a lot of the more liberal and academics and the elites have either left the country or have just become exhausted and given up even trying to do anything. The Economist writes here, and I think this is a good point. Ordinary Russians may not like the war, but they have become used to it. The elite have type it, t sorry, tightened their grip on the economy and are making plenty of money. I think, I think that is probably the key of it, is that it's created new industries. Putin has controlled the dialogue. And a lot of elites are just sitting back. And it's a shame because I think even me at the beginning, I was going, well, we can hope. We can hope that maybe there's some sort of political revolution here. The opposite has happened. And that is what happens when you have a state, a one-party state that punishes the opposition and all of your cronies run the different industries. Then the last thing, and this is, this is part of the original Economist article I was talking about. It talks about how Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, is very divided. And things are changing. I'm going to read this little passage. The Economist writes, Politics have returned in Kiev. And political divisions are making things harder than before. And so one example of this that I talked about about a month ago when The Economist put out that op-ed is that Volodymyr Zelensky and Valery Zaluzhny, who is the most senior general and obviously Zelensky president, they've had a major fallout. Again, Zalushny is the guy basically saying that it's a stalemate, they don't know where the money's going, and without any technological advantage, they're fucked. <laughs> Again, I'm paraphrasing, but basically that's what he said. And also then you have to look at internal polling provided outside of Ukraine, or like provided to us from external organizations, is that corruption scandals and worries about Ukraine's future have really hurt Zelensky and his standing with voters and... 
I don't think he has a great political situation going forward. And it does seem like there is a bit more of internal chaos. And again, you're not going to be able to defeat the Russians if your own house is turning on itself. And it, it is worrying to see, but it's also not surprising because there's a lot of finger pointing. And also, I've never agreed with the Marjorie Taylor Greens or the Trumps, those type of people. But I, I actually understood Rand Paul, who I don't usually agree with, but I understood why he said he wasn't completely opposed to Ukrainian aid, but he at least wanted to do an audit to know where it's going. And in a sense, I, I kind of agree with that, to be completely honest, because there is a lot of reports of corruption and just unknown unknown end games for where a lot of this money is going. And I guess if you do have divided, corrupt politicians inside of Ukraine, as well as obviously in Russia, you do want to know at least that the money's going to the front lines. And so this takes me to the last thing I want to talk about, though, is that the United States and Europe either need to get their act together or just say, fuck it, we don't care. Because... Basically, the specter of Trump returning to office is on the horizon, and I think by, by each day getting more and more likely. And to put it into perspective, right now, the Biden administration is struggling to get Congress to release that like $60 billion of funding to Ukraine. It's going to get even worse if Trump gets reelected, because he's, you know, claimed, I'm going to end the war in 24 hours and all this bullshit. I don't even know how you do that. Without just, you know, saying, Putin, take what you want, Ukraine, just pull out. But it's going to get a lot more difficult. And the problem is, is that Europe is not preparing for this idea that Trump could be back. European leaders seem to think that Biden is going to be president for life and are not doing anything to prepare for another Trump possibility. Europe should be preparing knowing that the United States is so divided that it's going to be impossible to pass aid really going forward. At the same time, the EU has promised 50 billion euros, $56 billion in aid to Ukraine. But Hungary, and possibly because of a budget mess in Germany, they're holding this up. Viktor Orban again, holding this up. I say throw their ass out of the EU. Hungary's, uh, Hungary's antithetical to the European experiment. But anyways, you have Giorgia Meloni, leader of Italy, PM of Italy. She also talks about how opinion is souring towards Ukraine. So I, I think when you combine Russia learning and evolving, Putin getting more stability at home, the West being fragmented and unclear on what our agenda is. And then you just have changes in leaders because democracies shift and leaders change. And then you also have internal division inside of Ukraine. When you add all of this up, it's not a rosy picture. What I also worry about in kind of a broader scale is that Russia is now ready for another conflict, right? Russia was slow. But since its war machine has been accelerated, if any other future conflicts happen, Russia is much more prepared for something like this. It also knows how to avoid sanctions and still make money off of the Earl crude. Also, The Economist brings up a good point, noting in quotes here, that Putin has put his money on, war, on a war footing and strengthened his grip on power. 
He has procured military supplies abroad and is helping turn the global south against America. Crucially, he is undermining the conviction in the West that Ukraine can and must emerge from the war as a thriving European democracy. So I, I do think Ukraine is somewhat descending into darkness. My, my estimation would be, especially if Trump gets into power, which I think is, again, more and more of a possibility, I think Ukraine is forced to go to the table. That more and more, and that's not what I agree with, I think that will just award Russia's behavior. But it does seem like that becomes a possibility if things go on. But then you would also have to play the scenario out in your head about would Putin even agree with that? Because Putin's, Putin's war on Ukraine, I think, is more than just about the Crimean, Donbass, Lunetsk regions. I think it's more about feeling the external threat of the Ukrainian heritage and people. So I don't know if he stops until all of that's gone. And so Biden has done a fair job. I think he could be doing better. But for his defense, he is quite sidetracked between campaign, Israel, a crazy Republican Party, the war in Ukraine, issues with China, AI. I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole. Biden's busy. And unfortunately, it looks like Ukraine has been kind of demoted on our list of priorities and a lot of Europe's priorities. So we'll have to keep following this, but it does look like a dissension into darkness is coming. So we will move on from foreign policy for now. Probably in the next few days, I do want to talk about a pretty bombshell New York Times report about Israeli intelligence women that were pretty much blowing the whistle on the potential for a Hamas attack almost a year before October 7th, and the Israeli government ignored it. And again, another reason why I think Netanyahu needs to resign immediately. But I'll probably talk about that in the next few days because this now looks way worse than what we knew before 9-11. Like way worse. And a lot of lives could have obviously been spared. But anyways, moving on to a few domestic things. I do want to talk about the QAnon shaman running for office for a minute. But the first thing I do want to mention is last night I was watching Bill Maher, as I always do. My hot take is that I think he's better than ever. Yes, his vaccine views and some of his boomer views on wealth inequality I don't agree with. But again, I think he has the right instinct when it comes to like Trump and Biden and the culture war. Like he's socially liberal, but also pretty hesitant about a lot of the woke shit. And also he's talked for years before others even talked about it, about how Trump is such a threat and how he will not go away and how he would never lose. So I think Bill Maher is interesting. But anyways, long story short, he had on James Carville, Carville and uh, <laughs> Dave Rubin. And Dave Rubin is one of my least favorite people. The reason I say that is because he's one of these people that's been on a journey. He's a gay man who was kind of a centrist, who now all of a sudden has become a big anti-vaxxer and a big Ron DeSantis defender. And he's, he's good at red herrings and straw men and, and ad hominem attacks all the time. And he has a huge following, huge following. And anyways, there were a few times during this, I recommend people watch the episode or at least some of the clips, but there were a few times where you could see Carville was just like, what the hell? Because James Carville, I think, is a great American and a really smart strategist. But long story short... I just bring this up is because Dave Rubin's talking like so they're talking about the Newsom DeSantis debate and you know 
Um, Ruben lives in Florida. He's a big DeSantis supporter. He still somehow thinks DeSantis is going to be president or at least has a chance. He kept saying, oh, I, I don't think it's obvious Trump is the nominee. Guys, I think it's pretty obvious Trump is the nominee unless he dies or is in prison. But anyways, so Ruben, they get into the topic of abortion and Ruben's a gay man, kind of a libertarian, and he's pro-choice, meaning he supports probably the Roe era decision. He says he's kind of a 15-week type of guy. And so then they're like, so why do you like Florida? And then, you know, Ruben gets into this talk about how DeSantis is is less dangerous than the left and how the Florida Republican Party is more sane than the left. That's why he likes them. And I'm just thinking to myself, DeSantis has joked about pardoning January Sixers. He put a six-week abortion ban on the table. He's attacked just gay equality in Florida. Obviously not a fan of the trans community. And you have Ruben here, a gay man, saying he's pro-abortion, but he thinks that DeSantis is the better option than Biden. And I just want to know what reality he lives in, because I'm not a huge Biden guy, as you guys know. I am definitely not a DeSantis guy. But if I was a like a gay man that was married with a child, I would probably prefer Biden's policies to DeSantis's policies. Or if I was a woman worried potentially about needing to get an abortion, I would much prefer Biden over DeSantis. And I think I think this is, again, the culture war brainworm is because I think Ruben's one of these people that's really focused on how the woke left and the college left has just ruined society and taken over college campuses. And so for him... All of Democrats and all of the left now are that. The pro-Hamas, woke, pro-whatever group, you know, that, that Trump calls Marxist. And that's just not true. There are a lot on the progressive left that completely condemn that type of insanity and identity politics. And But these people like Dave Rubin have made a career on rallying against this, even when some of the things that they personally live by are completely ruined if you had a radical Pence or DeSantis presidency. So I just found that kind of fascinating and I wanted to mention it. Anyways, the last thing I will talk about is Jacob Chansley running for Congress. Jacob Chansley is the QAnon shaman. Dun, dun, dun. He obviously came to <laughs> notoriety, popularity, whatever you want to say, because, you know, he, <laughs> he looked like a madman when he was part of the January 6th Capitol riot. And I watched him on David Pakman last night. Unique fella. He still thinks it was an inside job. By the way, I don't think it's an inside job. Well, I never did, but I really don't think it is now because Trump's even admitted that if he went down to the Capitol riots, he would have been greeted with open arms. If that was Antifa pretending... I don't think Trump would have been greeted with open arms. And allegedly, we also have heard reports about how Trump wanted to go down there and join them because he knew they were his people. But anyways, the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, he still believes this was a media and deep state hit job. But this guy's interesting because he's a he's a pretty hardcore Christian, but he also thinks he's like a alien reincarnate and a faith shaman and a healing shaman and... 
I think he was a vegan or at least a vegetarian because I, I remember seeing when he was in prison, he was on a hunger strike because they wouldn't get him the like whole food ingredients he needed, basically. This guy's a character. And like I said, he was on David Pakman. Pakman asked him, do you believe in all the QAnon stuff? And Pakman lists like 20 of the, you know, QAnon criteria. And the guy's like, QAnon's a word made up by the media. I don't think I particularly agree with all this stuff. But then he goes into how Pizzagate actually might have been real and how there is a child pedophile ring inside of Hollywood. And, you know, he just goes, he checks all the boxes and then just gets arrogant because Pacman hasn't done his research. Quite a guy. He thinks that the vaccines still have like fetal liquids in them. Fun stuff. But anyways, <laughs> he's going to run as a libertarian candidate in 2024 because nothing says libertarian like let's overthrow a... Uh, free and fair election. <laughs> and he is running because Debbie Lescow, um, the, re the representative of Arizona, Republican, she is not seeking re-election. So he is running as a candidate in Arizona's 8th congressional district. So he's an authoritarian libertarian, which to me seems like a complete contradiction. But, you know, it doesn't really surprise me. And, and the worst part here is that people laugh him off I listened to that interview on David Pakman and he scares the shit out of me because there's some there's there's just an emptiness in his eyes where you can tell he's just a cult believer. He 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 talks about how the media is just a hit job. I mean, this is just a guy who's been brainwashed. I'm sorry. And ten years ago, this guy would be a joke. But when you have like Lauren Boberts and Marjorie Taylor Greens in Congress, nothing's impossible. And he's also said that he was guilty of what he did and he's sorry. So he's trying to calm down his image a little bit. And so he's out of prison. He was sentenced in 2021, I believe it was. 41 months, yeah, in federal prison, pleading guilty. So we'll have to keep watching this. But now the interesting thing is, and this is what I learned today doing research for this, <laughs> is that Arizona law prohibits convicted felons from voting until they've completed their sentence and had their civil rights restored. But then at the same time, the U.S. Constitution does not bar convicted felons from holding federal office. And I guess, I guess in theory, it shouldn't because you never know what that felony is and in the, in the situation around it. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is a, this is a guy who for a while couldn't even vote in his own state, but he can actually run for Congress and be the guy that people vote for. There's something kind of insane to me about that. But look, again, the the asylum patients are now running the mental hospital. That is the GOP in a nutshell. Call me biased, call me whatever you want, but I just look at facts, and I just look at the people on the Republican side right now. George Santos, Lauren Boebert groping at a Beetlejuice musical, Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about Jewish space lasers, Matt Gates with all these alleged underage girls schemes. You have Mike Johnson who has his son checking his porn status because they're accountability bros. I mean, it's just hard to take some of these people seriously. And now we might have QAnon Shaman joining them. Because yeah, he's running as a libertarian. But we know what that means. He will definitely be on that side of it. Because I don't see him becoming a Biden ally. <laughs> Considering he was one of the people that was okay with hanging Mike Pence and thought that Trump should still be president. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. And again, attention listeners, 
Alex Kapitko, tenure student of politics, Truckee, California, 1994, signing out. Good night.